Good morning again. Second last sermon for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, how many have we had, do you think? Twenty, maybe? Or? Okay, we'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 21 to 23 this morning. Like I said, this is uh, the second last sermon in this series, and I've enjoyed it, and I... I've been challenged by it, and I hope you have as well. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Let's read together. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word, and we thank you for this time we can look into it. We ask now that our hearts would be prepared to receive it. We ask that your spirit would be working even now on our hearts, and that our sole purpose would be to grow through it, that we might live lives that are glorifying to you. Father, in everything we do, we seek your glory. We seek your honour. And uh, I pray that there is nothing in our lives that would cause your name to be dishonoured um, among the people in here and out there. Father, this morning I pray that you would bless me as I seek to share these, these wonderful truths with my brethren. And I thank you once again for them. I ask that you bless them abundantly during this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It's been a busy week. A lot of stuff going on. I know a lot of you are busy as well. A lot of things are happening. Uh, with work and with the preparation for the anniversary. And we had a wonderful men's breakfast yesterday as well. And we survived it and it was all good. And Greg's family survived it as well. Um, there are two particular things that occurred in this last week that sort of stand out in my mind and one was the feedback that, that Eddie gave me regarding that funeral of that young man who committed suicide and it was quite disconcerting when you when you understand that a, a young man has, has killed himself because of depression or, or things that he can't cope with and then uh, the priest in the actual funeral or during the funeral basically says or consoles everyone there, young and old, that he is in a much better place now and he has, he has no pain. How do you deal with that? How do you work with that? I struggle with that, to be honest with you. At the very least, it's negligent. You know, one thing that comes to mind is, I mean, what hope is he giving those young men and women who are struggling at this time? Isn't he telling them in a roundabout way that you know, the, the, the best way forward, if you're struggling, if you're in pain, if you have, if you have uh, uh, problems in your life, then one option you have is to actually take your own life because you'll be in a much better place regardless of what you do. The other um, situation that occurred during the week is that during work, we had the opportunity, and I shared this on Wednesday evening, um, had the opportunity to sit down with someone and uh, we were at a, in, a, in a business meeting uh, with someone talking about finances and my colleague shared uh, the fact that I was a pastor in the church to this other individual and his eyes lit up and he, he said, really? A pastor of what? And I said, a pastor of Baptist church and he goes, what's, what's the difference between your Baptist church and other Baptist churches and what's... So we started having a conversation about... about, um, about Christianity and the differences and, and how we treat the Bible and how we view the Bible compared to other denominations and that's what makes us basically different to everyone else. And then at the end of the business meeting, he pulled me up and he goes, I want to talk to you a bit more. So we had another 15-20 minute conversation after the, after the meeting that we had and I found that he was a Jew. And he was asking me these questions about, about, you know, about Christ and you know, how does someone get saved and I, we had this very... Good conversation. And I said to him, well, how do you get saved? How do you think you'll be saved? He goes, well, I'm relying on the mercy of God. I believe God will forgive me. 
I said, well, on what basis do you believe that God will forgive you? What, what do you think? He goes, because God's a very merciful God. And, and I said, well, okay, but you're a lawbreaker. You understand that, don't you? And being a Jew who'd go to synagogue every week and he'd read the, he'd read the, uh, the Tanakh, I think what they, they call it, he understood that he was a lawbreaker. And he said, yeah, I know I'm a lawbreaker. I said, so if we go just through the Ten Commandments, you understand you're breaking most of those, don't you? And he goes, yeah. And I said, if, you're, if you would die right now, if you died, and he was about late 50s, probably 60, okay? I said, if you died right now, where would you go? Where do you think you'd go? He goes, oh, I probably wouldn't, be, wouldn't have a very good chance. I said, okay. I said, he goes, but, he goes, for me it's all about a steady progression. For him it was all about improving day by day. I said... Allow me to be a little bit cheeky. I said, but you're almost 60 years old. I said, you've been progressing up to this point and you don't think you've made it. I said, at what point do you think you'll actually make it? And he's, he wasn't sure how to answer that one there. And then I said, well, look at the laws of this land. I said, I said look, at, look at this highway, busy Nepean highway. I said, if you took a car and you, you drove it recklessly and you killed someone as a result, I said... What would the judge have to do? I said, do you understand that God is not weighing your goods and your bads? I said, don't you understand that's what the Bible teaches? And he, and he was a little bit confused because that's what he actually thought that God would do with him. And I said, well, if you broke the law and you killed someone and, and, and you, um, you stood before the judge and the judge said, listen, you've broken this law. You have killed someone because of your reckless driving. I said, would your defence simply be... But look, I've been such a nice guy. Last, last year, I gave $200 to charity. I, uh, I helped mow my neighbour's lawn. I, I did all these things. I said, do you think those things would wash if you stood before a judge? He goes, oh, but the laws of this country are a lot harsher than God's laws. I said, harsher? I said, you're a Jew. I said, what would happen if you committed adultery according to God's law? He goes, oh, they'd take you out and stone you. Okay. What would happen if you committed idolatry? Oh, they'd take you out and stone you. I said, how many of God's laws would you have not had a second chance if you were a Jew? And he, he's, he's sort of got the point. I said, how can you say that the laws of this land are actually lighter than God's laws? I said, which is the higher? Which is, has a higher expectation? I said, you understand that, the, that it's... It, if you commit adultery with a woman, the Bible says you've, you've, you're, you're an adulterer, correct? And you deserve to be, guess what? Stoned. Death. Put to death. I said, but you know the Bible teaches that if you look at a woman to last after her and you've committed adultery in your heart, I said, what's God judging? The outward, which man judges, or the inward? He sees that as well. Which is harsher? And we finish. He goes, we, he goes Let's, we have to have finished this discussion another time. And I'm praying that we do. I'm praying that we do. But it's interesting. So from two different perspectives, we have a young man who is essentially a non-believer, doesn't really believe in God, with a Catholic background, where the priest of that religion knows very well, knows very well, you can't commit suicide and then be guaranteed of heaven. He knows that. Yet he lied blatantly to everyone. And then we have a Jew on the other side who knows his Bible, who knows the Old Testament, and still thinks that he, will, he may gain he may gain entry to heaven because of his good works. Most people believe that they will go to heaven when they die. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? Most people believe they'll go to heaven. And if you ask the average person in the street, you say, do you deserve to go to heaven when you die? They'll say, oh, yeah, for sure, I deserve to go to heaven. And you say, why? They'll say, I'm better than everyone else. Isn't that funny? Everyone's everyone better than everyone else when they compare, when they compare themselves to, to other people. And it's interesting because regardless of the walk of life, regardless of their background, regardless of their uh, socioeconomic status, regardless of all these things, if they have a belief in heaven, okay, then in their own mind, 99% of the time, they believe they're going to heaven. And this hope is fostered because of a certain belief they have about God. And it doesn't come from the Bible. 
Because 99.9% of people haven't read the Bible. They don't know anything about God. So what they do is they formulate their opinion about God because of things they've watched on TV, because of other you know, people's opinions that they've heard, because of things they want God to be. But guess what that is? We call that idolatry. You make a God to suit yourself according to your own desires and you fashion him the way you want him. In the old days, they used to fashion a God out of wood and stone. They used to carry him around with them wherever they went or they'd leave him at home, depending on what, what type of uh, service they wanted that God to perform. Today, we don't necessarily carve images of gods, but we still create idols. Man is still in the business of creating idols, and, and they do it in a number of different ways. There are as many idols today as they were, as they were back then. So they create a God who is all loving, all merciful, but this God, 99% of the time, has no power, no justice, and doesn't hold anyone to account. This is called idolatry. And most people base their hope on this notion of God, that, he, that this benevolent God who has no ability to be able to judge sin, that he will weigh up their good versus their bad, and in their mind, they believe that their good will always outweigh their bad. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Nowhere near. The Lord has warned us a number of times that there will be few in this world who have that balance correct. Very few. And that balance is not because of their efforts. That balance is because God has fixed the balance. Because God has weighed the right side down with his righteousness and not theirs. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Today's passage is similar to that. He's restating a very similar concept as he stated in verse 13 to 14, only seven verses later. Let's look at verse 21. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The first thing I'd really like us to ask ourselves is, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is it? Why would you want to enter it? Where is it? And the kingdom of heaven, basically, in a nutshell, refers to God's kingship, his rule from heaven. And this kingdom is centred around the person of Jesus Christ. He is the king of this heaven, of this rule. And this rule is manifest not just in heaven, because heaven is the obvious manifestation of that, of that realm, but this rule is manifest in the hearts of men and women okay, who have accepted him as king in their lives, who aren't necessarily in heaven, but who are outside of heaven. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, you don't need to turn with me. Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus has ultimate power. He can do what he wills, as he wills, when he wills, in heaven and on the earth. Jesus is ruler of both. But on the earth, we don't find his rule inaugurated yet. We don't find his rule manifest around us. What we find on the earth is his rule in the hearts of men. And we see this because Jesus specifically teaches in the New Testament that the kingdom of heaven is spiritual in nature. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17.
Look at Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. It says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. And when Jesus walked to the earth 2,000 years ago, before his crucifixion and resurrection, he made it clear, made it clear that the kingdoms on this world were not his. That the rule of this world was not his. In John 18.36, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus' kingdom was from heaven. And heaven was invading earth. God was taking back the earth, which rightly Whitefield belonged to him. And he was doing it through the, the, the conduit or the, the avenue of his son. The Bible teaches that even though Jesus now sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, he lives and rules in the hearts of men who have given their hearts to him and have received him as their Lord and Saviour. Now, scriptures teach, I'll give you two quick ones. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And Acts chapter 2, verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom we have crucified, crucified both Lord and Christ. They're two different things. He is Saviour of this world. He is the Messiah who was sent to save mankind. He is the Lamb of God. And He is the Lord of all. Now, The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom with a king whose name is Jesus. He has subjects both in heaven and on the earth. Those subjects on the earth are few in number, few in number, and have transferred their this earth to his kingdom. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. So you understand that if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, that you have been transferred from the kingdom of this world to his kingdom. You are now a subject of his kingdom. And I'll, I'll share one other thing with you about that very important point. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's, what hap that's what's happened. If you've put your faith in Christ this morning, you have been delivered, saved from, saved out of the darkness of this world, and you've been delivered into the kingdom of God. We are subjects of God. We now belong to his kingdom. Even though we are still on this earth, the kingdom of God now dwells inside of us. We don't belong to this earth. That's why the scriptures can talk about us being like Abraham, who, who didn't seek for a tabernacle on the earth. He was seeking a, a heavenly tabernacle. And as we do, as the Apostle Paul says, that, you know, that our bodies groan in earnest. The whole, of, the whole of creation groans to be clothed, and so do we. We want to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ one day. We want these mortal bodies to be shed and not have to be standing behind this pulpit praying for illnesses and sicknesses and problems in our lives because in that day when we shed this mortal coil, we will receive bodies that are new, that are finely tuned to heaven, that will never rust, that will never wear out, that will never experience the pain that we feel now and the problems that we have. And that's an exciting day that will come. 
So we have been translated, first of all, from the power of darkness, which, was, which had us in its grip, the power of this world. The Bible says that the, that the devil himself is the prince of the power of the air in this world and the god of this world, mind you. And then it's delivered us into this kingdom. And then look what it says that we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen to twenty. This is probably one of my most favorite, my most favorite passages in Scripture. Therefore, verse seventeen: If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry. Of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. God has not only translated us into his kingdom, but because we still live on this earth, we still live amongst this darkness that's around us. God has made us to become his ambassadors. Ambassador is a wonderful term because an ambassador represents a foreign country, represents a foreign rule, and we do. That's why our lives are so important. That's why integrity in our lives is, is such an important thing, that we live lives that are consistent, that we live lives that show people who God is. And if we don't live the sort of lives that God would have us live, live, then people will look at us as the ambassadors who represent the kingdom of heaven and blaspheme who? They'll blaspheme him. And that shouldn't happen. One day the Bible says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of God. Jesus will take his throne on this earth as well as in heaven and the physical world that we see around us and the spiritual world of heaven will become one. Heaven and earth and all of creation will then become one in nature and in rule. There will be no opposition. There will be one citizenship and one ruler. And this will happen when Jesus returns as the lion. See, my Jewish friend struggled to understand struggled to understand because he said he'd read the new testament which i doubt very much and he said that he said that jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies of the old testament and i said you're probably right jesus didn't fulfill all the prophecies in the old testament i said because jesus fulfilled half of them because you see why we have a lamb over here and a lion over here it's because jesus is coming twice Jesus came the first time as a lamb, and he came as what we call a suffering servant. He suffered and died for the sins of the world, and he had to do that. But the Bible says there will come a day when he comes back as a, as a lion. And when he comes back as a lion, he will defeat all the kingdoms of the world. He will take ownership of this place, and he will literally, for a thousand years, sit as king in Jerusalem, and rule the world with an iron rod. With an iron rod. We will take ownership of this world. When Jesus returns, the Bible says that we'll be returning with him. He won't be coming back as a lamb anymore. What does a lion do? Yeah. It won't be a pretty picture. It will not. There will be many, many deaths. There will be a fair bit of destruction. But Jesus will finally take his, his throne on this world. And he will rule it with love, but with strength. 
So Jesus says in, verse, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. The obvious point that Jesus is making here is that it's not enough to simply call him Lord and then go off and do your own thing. It's not enough. It's not your words that will justify you. Even in Jesus' day, as there are today, people say one thing and they do another. But it's in the doing that your heart is revealed. Jesus says clearly that even though you may call me Lord, it will be your actions that reveal whether he really is your Lord. An interesting point to observe here is this. According to this, according to this particular verse, look what it says here. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is the minimum requirement? According to this, this verse, what is the minimum requirement that Jesus is making here as a prerequisite to enter heaven? What do you think he's saying? What's the minimum requirement? I'll tell you what it is, very simply. That he's genuinely your Lord. Does that make sense? That he's genuinely your Lord. And if he's not genuinely your Lord, you should have no expectation that you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's a very plain, simple reading over here. So why do we find so den many denominations teaching the exact opposite? That it's not only, not only all right not to obey him as your Lord, but it's even optional just to call him your Lord. That you can take him as your saviour. You can do and live whatever lifestyle you like. And most of the churches teach this today. That they can live whatever lifestyle they like. That Jesus doesn't have to be their Lord. You can take all the benefits of Jesus and you can choose at a later time whether you want him as your Lord. But let me ask you a question. How does that fit into this verse? Because if Jesus is saying that people are calling him Lord and he's not letting him into heaven because they weren't sincere with what they said, what will happen to the people who aren't even bothering to call him the Lord? There is a great danger in today's teaching. You can latch on to Jesus as your saviour. You can take all the benefits that you want out of him. You can treat him as your, your cosmic um, slot machine, your cosmic answer to all your problems and all your, all your cares, um, and you don't have to go the, all the way and follow him. But Acts chapter 2 verse 32 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel... No, assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, crucified both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. You cannot take Jesus, please. You cannot take Jesus as one part that you like and not take the rest of him. It's a bit like trying to take one side of a coin. You can't take the coin without taking both sides of that coin. And it's the same criticism we have of them about God. Do you want to see the parallel here? They all want a God who is merciful and kind and patient and, and forgiving. But they can't stand a God who is just and pure and righteous and holy. So what they do is they'll take the part of God they want and then they'll throw away the rest. Now, what's the difference when they do it with Jesus? He's God. You can't take half of him and say, I'm serving the same Jesus. Isn't it idolatry as well? It's perfect idolatry. Because he is God in the flesh. We've been called to worship him. Do you remember the conference we had with his focus on being a disciple? And the answer we had to that is, can a person be a Christian and not be a disciple? And what was the answer? The answer was no. It was an obvious no. You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple. Well, guess what a disciple is? A disciple is someone who has called Jesus their master, their Lord, and they follow him. 
They forsake all and they follow him. The genuine believer is a true disciple of Christ. A true disciple of Christ is a sincere follower of Christ. And a sincere follower of Christ has Jesus as their Lord. So Jesus teaches that you must be a genuine disciple to enter into the kingdom of heaven. A genuine disciple does the will of the Father, which is in heaven, just as Jesus did his Father's will. If you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then you must do the will of the Father, which is in heaven. Unfortunately, this is not true for the vast majority of people who profess themselves to be Christians. Look at verse 22. Many, many will say to me in that day, in that day, when is that day? That day is sometime in the future, when there is a future judgment on them. Many will say to me, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name have done many wonderful works? Many will say, Lord, Lord, prophesy, cast out devils, wonderful works. Can I ask you a question? How do you stack up against those things? How do you and I stack up against those types of works? I haven't cast out many demons lately. I haven't prophesied. I'm not sure if you call the things I do wonderful works either. How do we match up with those things? An impressive list. But if wonderful works and this impressive, these impressive things that were done were the means or the way to get to heaven, then I suppose that would have been just fine. But the interesting thing here is that Jesus doesn't even bother to respond to the wonderful things they've done. He doesn't even say, oh, yeah, thanks for that. Wonderful job you did with those, you know, with the casting out those devils the other day. Amazing prophecy. Really good job with that one over there. You, you, you spoke God's words absolutely perfectly. All, all those wonderful works you did, I really took notice of them. He doesn't even acknowledge them. He doesn't acknowledge any of those things. Because salvation doesn't come by good works. Salvation doesn't come by wonderful works. Salvation does not come by any of those things. Salvation doesn't come by establishing our own righteousness by, by the works that we do. And these people are coming to him and saying, look at what we've done for you. Look at all the stuff that we're, we're bringing you know, along. Look at the list of things that I've, you know, that I've actually you know, been able to accomplish in your name. And Jesus says, oh... Doesn't even mention it. But if they thought that they had merit before God because of the good things they had done, then they missed the verse in Isaiah that says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our filthiness, righteousness, are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Romans 3 says, For we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Salvation doesn't come by works. Acceptance to God doesn't come by having a list of things you've done for him so that he accepts you and says, Well done. Look at all you've accomplished. Come on in. It has nothing to do with that. Salvation is a gift given to you and me by simply trusting Jesus to save you from your sin. For the grace of God, for the grace, sorry, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, one question to go on a bit of a sidetrack. If these people were unsaved, and understand this, Jesus says something very scary later on. And I won't, I won't share it with you then, but let's assume these people are unsaved. How did they perform these works? Ever wondered that? If these people were unsaved, how did they cast out demons and how did they prophesy and how did they do all these wonderful works? Because I wonder. Because those things require some sort of ability or grace or strength. Well, there's, a, there's an interesting story in Acts chapter 19. If you look at, if you go there with me, this is just a quick sidetrack. Acts chapter 19, verse 13. 
Exercising demons was not an uncommon thing in the old in the in the Old Testament and even New Testament times. There were certain men who were exorcists uh, in those days, as there are today. And verse 13 of chapter 19 says, Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, okay, so there already were exorcists, these guys, took upon them to carry, uh, to call over uh, them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. You like that? That's nice. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and the chief of the priests, which did so. They tried this thing out. They heard Jesus' name had a lot of power to it. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them. Mind you, seven of them. And prevailed against them. And so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, these guys had cottoned onto this, this idea or this thought that the name of Jesus was a powerful name. Because in Jesus' name, Jesus' disciples were casting out devils. And they were doing it at ease. How were these guys doing it when we have to go through all these rituals and prayers and everything like that? So they started using the same name. Um, and to their peril, they, they, uh, they went into something they shouldn't have gone into. Because the devil indeed recognised the name of Jesus. He didn't recognise Paul, which is an interesting thing as well, but didn't recognise them. You see, they did not have the Holy Spirit within them to protect them. They weren't part of uh, the disciples of Christ. They were simply using his name for their purposes. So these, this, uh, these demons, uh, sorry, only one, one evil spirit in one man managed to overcome seven men and, and cause them to leave the house running and screaming for their lives um, stripped naked, which would have been quite an interesting um, look. Buyer beware. When you mess with the spiritual realm uh, you're, and you're not genuinely saved, you're asking for trouble. You're absolutely asking for trouble. I find it interesting how some charismatics um, find it exhilarating to get involved in the spiritual warfare. I don't know, I don't know if any of you have any experience with uh, spiritual... And I'll put that in inverted commas because charismatics love their spiritual warfare. Um, they love... You know, the Bible says that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Okay, Well, these guys I've heard more than once, because I've come from a background that, that I used to go to charismatic churches. And, and the, uh, the philosophy was we want to not just be you know, guarding, holding the fort. We want to be kicking in the gates of hell. You like that? They want to be going and attacking hell itself and, and trying to attack the devil and, and his, uh, his cohorts. Um, unfortunately, what happens with these sorts of people who get involved too much in these sorts of things is they begin to see demons everywhere. I'm not sure if you know much about the, the charismatic philosophy, but there becomes a demon with a special name for everything that goes wrong. Right? There's a demon of smoking, a demon of lying, a demon, a demon of backaches, a demon of headaches, a demon of uh, you know bad breath, and a demon of so every possible problem that you can imagine. There's a special demon just for that. Okay, and everyone's infected with demons. There's demons all over the place. So you spend half your all your time casting out demons, binding demons, sending them down to Tartarus, and doing all these weird and wonderful things. God never asked us to do that. God never asked us to go attacking the, the, the angelic realm. Unfortunately, same people who, are, who involve themselves in these sorts of things get often plagued by and tormented by these sorts of things. And they, they regret getting into them. Jesus says in verse 23, Matthew 7, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's interesting. They, these people were going out, doing all these wonderful works, 
Um, and they came to Jesus and said, look at all the wonderful things we've done for you. Jesus says, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. You know what the problem was? He didn't recognise their, their good works because they were not authorised to those good works. The good works in and of themselves may not have even been wrong. But unless you have authority to do those things, it's pointless. It's useless. They had no authority. They were workers of iniquity. In other words, they wanted to do it themselves. In their own way, not according to God's way. And we find that often in Scripture too. Do you remember Moses? Moses was asked when... when Israel was, was thirsty and needed water. And God said to Moses, you know, strike the rock. Moses struck a rock. And guess what? All this water came out. And God provided water for, for his people. It happened again later on. God said, Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses, with a bit of a, I'm not sure what he was thinking at the time, instead of, instead of speaking to that rock, he struck the rock again. And water came out. But Moses was not authorised to do that. You see, God wants things done in a specific order. God authorises things. Authority is very important to God. That mistake, that one mistake, even though Moses was faithful all the way through, 40 years with, the, with, with a couple of million people who were whinging and whining all the way in the middle of a desert, God said to him, you're not coming into the promised land. You're dying just outside. You'll get to see it with your eyes, but you're not going to go in. The way we do things is as important as what we do to God. God authorises people to do certain things. Do you remember that, that we are his creation, we are his workmanship, and he's created works for us to walk in? Do you understand that? If we take our own path and we say, well, God's prepared that work for me, I don't like that work over there. I'm going to go over here and do something else that's nice to do. We may find ourselves in, in similar problems. King Saul was a very similar example. Now, king Saul, being made the first king of Israel, you know, celebrated guy, went missing on the first day when he was meant to be there, hiding somewhere. I'm not sure what he was doing. Um, but when it came to the, um, the Amalekites, God said to him, I want you to, to attack the Amalekites. I want you to wipe them out because the Amalekites were a nasty bunch of people who, when Israel was very vulnerable and weak, were attacking them and took advantage of them. And God said, I want you to go to those people. I want you to wipe them out and don't leave anything standing. And what does um, Saul do? He, beats, he, he defeats them in, uh, in battle but spares the king. And he allows people to take, of his own people, to take certain things away because they were going to sacrifice those things later. And God said, why did you do that? I wanted you to, to destroy everything and not let anything go. Instead, he chose to do it a little bit different. Every time people do things differently the way God wants it, there's always problems later on down the track. We find this thing repeated over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture where God says, I want you to do it this way. And man says, okay, look, I'll do it uh, I'll do it 80% that way, but I'm going to do it 20% this way because I think this is better. And then they fall over, over and over and over again. And there are repercussions that are paid. These people who were going to God and saying, who were standing before the Lord and saying, haven't we done all these wonderful works in your name? Haven't we? We've cast out demons. We've, we've prophesied. And Jesus is saying, what? Did I authorise you to do those things? I never knew you. None of those things actually matter because you're not saved. You never. I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, some people use these passages like these to, to talk about, you know, if, you, if you're a Christian, you have to make sure that you're obeying, otherwise you're going to lose your salvation. That's all gobbledygook. Jesus says, you know, I never knew you. Not that I knew you and then you, you, you messed up. Never. doesn't matter which of these you look at, whether it's the gate. And Jesus says, you know, enter by the narrow gate. Jesus doesn't say once you've entered and you come out again. Jesus says, enter. And once you've entered, you will find life. And it's the same thing with this over here. 
It's either you know Jesus or you don't. It's either he recognises you or he doesn't. Um, it's speaking the same thing. Turn with me to a, to a passage in Luke. Often we, we, I go to Luke and I find passages that are very similar. If you look at Luke 13, this is a very interesting passage because what it does, it actually, it actually builds two of these passages together that we find in Matthew together into one. And it really does a, a wonderful job of it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Look what it says here. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Does that sound familiar? Okay. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able to. When once the master of the house is risen up and is shut to the door, and you begin to stand without, it means outside, and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not from whence ye are. Then ye shall begin to say, But we have eaten and drunken in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. Verse 27 says, But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Doesn't this sound very similar? But he's taken... What's happened is he's taken the actual passage about entering into the gate, right? And then them being too late. So they're trying to knock at a door. The door's been shut. It's too late for them to enter. But it says, look at this, the same parallels. Strive to enter in, okay? For many will seek to enter in when it's too late. Now, our passage today says there are many who will call him Lord, and he's not going to recognise them. And they say to him, they call him Lord, and they say to him, we didn't do these. They didn't say we do all these wonderful things for you. But they say, hang on, we ate and drank with you. We know you. You came and taught in our streets. And he says, sorry, I don't know where you're from. Which is the same as saying, sorry, I don't know you at all. He's saying exactly the same thing to them. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. <laughs> Notice how in this passage in Luke, these two pages, passages are combined in the same message. These people never came to know Christ. They never knew him. And the, the one thing we know about scripture, and in John it tells us, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known of mine. Jesus knows his sheep. He knows them already. And his sheep know him. This is what these people failed to do. The frightening, this is a frightening passage when you, when you think about it, is that many people will come to the end of their life, will find themselves before, before a throne, thinking that they know Jesus. And they'll go in there and they'll say, Hey Lord, you remember me? Frank, I did all these wonderful things for you on the earth. And Jesus says, I don't know you. I'm sorry. That would be the most frightening thing that you, would, you could ever imagine. Thinking that you were going to heaven, but now destined for hell. These people had never entered the gate. They'd never accepted Jesus as their Lord. They may have professed his name. They may have followed certain Christian traditions but they had never entered into a relationship with him. God's will is for you and I to believe in Jesus and not just a roundabout belief, a genuine belief. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's God's will, that we genuinely believe in Christ. That we genuinely believe in the real Jesus, not a fake Jesus, not a Jesus we want and we create in our own image, but the real one. We take him for who he is and we make a choice to follow him. Now this morning, 
I want you to ask yourself a question. Is he your Lord? Do you call him Lord, but then don't do the things that he says? That shouldn't be. That shouldn't be the case. Is he your Lord this morning? Understand, the answer to that question is as critical as any other question in your life. Is he your Lord? The the Jewish guy was relying on the mercy of God to save him. But let me ask you a question. God has sent his son into this world, his only begotten son, to die for the sins of this sin-wretched world. And the Bible says that he is now the only way. What if a man rejects that way and says, I'm going to reject that provision you've made for me. I'm going to reject that sacrifice you've made for me. I don't really care that you've actually allowed your son to die for me. I don't care. I want to do it my own way. Here, this is what I've got to bring for you. Will you accept it? Will you be merciful to me? How can God be merciful when he has, he has been totally unmerciful on his own son? How merciful do you want him to be on you if you reject that mercy? There will be so many people who, unfortunately, will be counted as, an, as people of iniquity and will be sent away. Jesus is the only, only way. And there is no security outside of of this existence, in this particular life, if you are not in Jesus now. Just as there was no hope if you were outside the ark when the rain started falling, there is no hope, no hope outside of Jesus now. I'll close with one verse. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, He it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. God bless you. Thank you.